Welcome to the HR Power Hour, presented by Career Management Associates. I'm David Chulo. It's about all things in the human resource world. We're going to bring in local, regional, and national guests, and we're going to talk about a variety of topics and explain why human resource management is critical to your business success so that you can make decisions to keep and retain great talent. Welcome to the HR Power Hour presented by CMACareer.com and Barrel-Law.com. I'm Tani Alvarez, your host from Barrel, and today our guest is Sean Hunter, president and founder of Mindscaling and author of the book, Small Acts of Leadership, 12 Intentional Behaviors That Lead to Big Impact. Welcome, Sean, and thank you so much for being on the show. Of course, I'm delighted. Thanks for the invitation. So as um, kind of you and I have talked earlier, and as I was reading your book, I kept saying to myself, I have to have you on the show. So I am so excited and glad that we have the opportunity to have this discussion and that your schedule is such that we are able to um, have you on the show. Uh, happy to do it. I hope I say something important. I'm sure you will, especially considering all the nuggets of really helpful information that that are within the book itself. Um, so I'm really excited to get going and kind of talking about the content of the book. But I think before we do that, um, I'm going to presume that a lot of our listeners haven't read the book. Um, so can you give the listeners a little bit of background about yourself and, and why you decided to, to write, write the book itself? Sure. Well, I've been working on the subject of leadership culture and innovation for about 20 years or so. And in fact, I've been interviewing all kinds of interesting people to write books on the subject. The reason I wrote the book is to make leadership accessible and easy to digest, to give actionable ideas to people all around the world, to implement in their professional work, in their personal lives, in their community, to make a meaningful difference. So I'm really trying to demystify the notion of leadership and make it accessible and applicable to you and I in our everyday lives. That was really the point of it. I've written other books that I think maybe more dense or, or academic, uh, including even a book about cycling across the United States with teenage kids. But this particular book was really more about making leadership accessible to you and I every day. And I would 100% agree with what your intention was. And I think you, you achieved that. Um, one of the great parts about the book, and especially you dividing it into these 12 intentional behaviors. So each of those 12 intentional behaviors then become its own chapter. And within each chapter, we then have sub parts within it that give a different concept and how that concept relates to um, each of those 12 intentional behaviors. From my point of view, kind of someone who feels as though they have limited time for free reading, who spends a lot of time reading. Anyways, I found that the book was really easy to get through because the chunks of information were so well organized. Nice. Thank you. That was the point, to make it digestible, accessible, and actionable. And I throw in some fun engaging stories, uh, real life stories and anecdotes about my personal life and applying these ideas, but also entrepreneurs and leaders from all over the world who have used these ideas 
to make a better difference in their organizations and the people around them, to elevate the people around them. So in the book, you talk some about your different experiences and, and your family plays a role in the book. And I think that there's some great personal stories in there that have uh, professional, um, that touch on professional issues. And then there's also discussions that you have about your work and the work that you've done in the past. Can you tell um, our listeners a little bit about the work that you do now with mind scaling and, um, and in addition to mind scaling, the consulting and speaking work that you do? Sure. I've been working, as I mentioned, for, for years in creating online learning content uh, mostly around the areas of leadership, presence, innovation, cultural change. And that's what our organization, MindScaling, does. So we create online, scalable, digital assets that can touch people throughout organizations and help advocate for behavioral change to make a real difference in, in organizations, and particularly in this online world that we're living in right now, to be able to have scalable digital assets is, is really valuable. So that's one piece of what, what our company, MindScaling, does. I personally love to research and write on the subject, and I do a fair amount of workshops and speaking. And maybe when the pandemic lets up, uh, I'll go back on the road and do it in person again because it's, it can be really powerful and life-affirming and changing to share these ideas with groups. So it's interesting that you you mentioned kind of change and and I think it really leads into a big takeaway from small acts of leadership and at the towards the end of the book you note that the big idea behind the book itself is that individuals cannot wait for seismic change to come from above. Um, what do you mean when you when you have that phrase that we can't wait for seismic change? Right, a lot of us sort of, you know, either sit around and wait for the phone to ring or wait for somebody else to step forward and take action or somebody to take control. My dad had an old joke, you know, if you're in a, a meeting or a conference, everyone's really nervous when there's silence. But then when somebody stands up and starts talking, everyone can relax, you know, because <laughs> it's as if somebody's taking charge and it, and it lets everyone sort of breathe a sigh of relief. The point is that we are all responsible for the change we want to see in the world. You know, that old adage, lead by example, lead by initiative. And we often have this grandiose idea in our head of who a leader might be, like Gandhi or Martin Luther King. But the truth is that leadership is personal and accessible, and it starts with small actions and individual personal conversations. There's another old yarn about, you know, somebody goes up to Gandhi and says, well, how do you lead so many people? How do you galvanize these great crowds and he says well first I have one conversation and then I have another <laughs> so that was really the point of the book and I think it's interesting kind of talking about leadership and the way that leadership is discussed in your book because even if you're not a person who's in a leadership position but you're within an organization um, or you have no desire to be a quote-unquote leader I think one of the great parts about the stories in your book and the, the different intentional behaviors is the fact that they are behaviors that you can institute in any aspect of your life when you're dealing with your family, when you're parenting, when you have to make family choices, or when you are trying to figure out maybe 
why work or your job or those type of things aren't providing fulfillment for you anymore. I think it's helpful both to look at yourself as to what your leadership potential is or where you may be lacking it, but also to realize why you might feel a certain way because of a lack of leadership within your organization um, or the experience itself. Right, exactly. I mean, one of the very first things I confront in the book is this notion of imposter syndrome. And I tell this story about Olivia Fox Cabane. She teaches at Stanford University. And every year she asks a group of incoming freshmen, well, how many of you in here feel that you're the one mistake that the admissions committee made? And then each year, more than two thirds of the students, they raise their hands. And I go on to, to write, you know, Margaret Chan, the director of the World Health Organization, Maya Angelou, uh, Academy Award winner Kate Winslet, they've all felt this sense of imposter syndrome while usually while in the middle of doing their very, very best work, which is sort of the remarkable thing about imposter syndrome. When you feel like you're in over your head, you're really doing remarkable stuff because what happens is as you get more adept, assume more leadership, take more initiative, have more success and results, suddenly you're then surrounded by more and more and more successful people. And then you have this compounding effect that you, you know, increasingly feel like you don't know what you're doing. Absolutely. And I, I can tell you that I, that I have felt that way before. So it was interesting to see some of these extremely, extremely successful people who were kind of admitting that, that they were experiencing that issue. And I thought that was, that was great to hear and understand. You're listening to the HR Power Hour radio show. I'm your host, Tony Alvarez, and today we're talking to Sean Hunter, president and founder of Mindscaling and author of the book, Small Acts of Leadership, 12 Intentional Behaviors That Lead to Big Impact. We're talking specifically about different aspects of the book and, and ways in which each of us can become stronger leaders through simple, smaller acts. In many situations or in many cases, uh, change is forced upon managers. In your experience, Sean, is forced institutional change as effective as incremental self-driven change, um, which you, you talk a lot more about kind of that self-driven change within the book itself. I do. And this is a, a tricky answer because the, you, your question is, in my experience, is forced institutional change as effective as incremental self-driven change, right? Like, like top-down, you know, implemented kind of change versus self-driven change. And, and the reason this is a tricky answer to start with is because, of course, people don't like change. Nobody likes to change. <laughs> That's why most of what we think, most of the people we interact with, most of the things we say, the same thoughts, conversations, and interactions are the same things that we had the day before and the day before that. It's assuring, it's comforting, it confirms our own biases. And so sometimes positive change can come from an external catalyst, somebody provoking you or some organization provoking you and pressuring you to take on new initiatives and new challenges. Uh, that's where like this great quote comes in from uh, General Shinseki, he, he liked to say, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very, very good point. And I mean, to, to further emphasize that, I think that we see it on a daily basis, and especially with people who 
I don't want to say complain, but even ourselves, if we're complaining about things, I think most often we complain about the same things over and over again without instituting change, without driving the change so that you're no longer complaining about these concerns that, that you have an issue with or that you believe aren't as effective as, as potentially you could make them. Right, right. And that's where the, the external pressure and provocation from an organization or a manager or leader can be really valuable. However, however, change driven through self-awareness and self-actualization is even more powerful, at least to start with, because that motivation is intrinsic. You know, it comes from within ourselves. If the change or the transition or the adoption of new skills comes from the top down, well, then it's really hard to get people to own that change and make sure that they see where they fit in the whole design. People have to have a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, and that belonging comes from that intrinsic motivation, that they're, they're intrinsically driven to excel and adopt new skills, new ideas, new mindsets, and become part of the community. And I would presume that one of the reasons why that becomes so difficult for, for most organizations is because each of us are driven intrinsically by, by different factors, whether it's for money, promotion, fame, um, peer support, or, or any host of other intrinsically driving factors. Right, exactly. We have our, our own idiosyncrasies, our own internal motivations that sometimes we reveal to others and sometimes we don't. We keep very, very personal to ourselves. So that's why ultimately, if we can find what drives our own purpose from a personal perspective, that can yield wonderful results. Now, again, I want to get back to this external motivation. The external provocation from a manager or leader or an organization can get you to try new things. And the trying of the new things, of course, is really difficult at first, but that's where constantly showing up and doing the work, doing the diligence, going to the woodshed, as I, as I like to say, <laughs> um, builds the skills that then you develop mastery. And then there's a joy and a pride of work in developing that mastery that then converts that external motivation to an intrinsic one so that you find your own joy in learning new skills, developing talents, and having pride in a job well done. In the book, you mentioned kind of also, however, identifying a point in time in which quitting may be the appropriate solution, that, that finding that intrinsic value may, may just not be possible. Is there a timeline in your mind for when to quit or is that going to be driven by each individual scenario or situation as to if I can't find what intrinsically drives me in this role or in this position or in this situation, how long do you try? Well, I'll give you an analogy because I've, I've had many conversations with individuals who are in roles where you know, they don't feel like they're being utilized or realized to their full potential. They're hampered constantly by those around them. They're hamstrung. And so the question is, how long do you persevere? You know, how long do you push through in a particular engagement? And when do you say, forget it, I, I need to move on. And I like 
to recommend that people set a, a, a season. And, and the notion of a season I get from sports. So just like we used to tell our kids, well, if you join the hockey team or the soccer team or the cross country track team, you're going to see it through to the end of the season. And you're going to learn something. You're going to go through some adversity, some difficulty. And then at the end of it, once you've experienced it, then if you really want to quit, you think it sucks or there's something better, you want to try a different sport or in, in the metaphor, move on to a different job, go ahead and do that. But don't bail before you've realized the potential of learning and the potential of developing new skills. So I like to say, give yourself, quote, a season. And you, that's an elastic definition. But, you know, if you, ha if you have a frustrating, uh, frustrating meeting for two weeks in a row, that doesn't constitute a season. And that's not good reason to quit. I think the elastic portion of, of that is, is important, especially because I don't think any of the Bruins expected to be playing hockey into September this year. Um, <laughs> with that, we're gonna take uh, we're gonna take a break. You're listening to the HR Power Hour on News Talk WLOB 100.5 FM and WLOBradio.com. We'll be right back. In today's highly regulated climate. Customized HR solutions are needed more than ever. Career Management Associates can partner with your existing HR department for projects or even serve as your outsourced HR team. From compliance and compensation to investigations and employer relations, CMA provides you trusted HR solutions. Call 207-780-1125 or visit cmacareer.com. Are you looking to hire? Stop wasting time. Jobsinme.com has been matching main employers to job seekers since 1999. Job postings start at only $159 with their Quick Post product. Your employment ad can be distributed to over 75 job boards for maximum exposure. When it comes to recruiting locally, you can count on Jobs and ME to connect you with qualified candidates in this area. Visit Jobsinme.com. That's Jobsinme.com today. Stop searching and start hiring locally. At 154 years old, Verald Dana has an illustrious history and more than seven generations of legal expertise. With more than 130 attorneys across seven offices from Maine to Washington, D.C., Verald Dana serves clients across the country and around the world. HR professionals, business leaders, and in-house counsel count on Verald Dana, one of the premier labor and employment law practices in the Northeast. Contact them today at veraldana.com. I'm Chris Riccobono, founder of Untuck It. We started Untuck It because we couldn't find shirts that look good untucked. That's why we created the perfect untucked shirt so guys can look sharp and feel casual. Untuck It shirts fall at just the right length. We have 50 fit combinations so tall, short, slim, and bigger guys of all ages can look great in Untuck It shirts. Try the original Untuck It shirt at one of our 55 Untuck It stores or at untuckit.com. Use the promo code FALL for 20% off your first purchase. And we're back, and you are listening to the HR Power Hour, presented by CMACareer.com and Veril-Law.com. I'm Tani Alvarez, your host from Veril, and today our guest is Sean Hunter, president and founder of MindScaling, and author of the book, Small Acts of Leadership, 12 Intentional Behaviors That Lead to Big Impact. 
Before the break, we are talking about giving opportunities a season before before you quit or before you decide that, that this isn't going to work for you and it's time to, to move your talent elsewhere. Sean, do you find that 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 seasonal kind of time frame is the same without regard to the generations um, within the workforce or are there differences there? Right. Good question. So in reflection on different generations and how they approach longevity in work, it is stereotypical in generalities that older generations like to think they stick with a job. If they quit too early, it'll look bad on their resume. Why did they quit? Whereas younger generations, Gen Z, millennials, feel more apt to jump and, and move on. If they're not satisfied, they're not realizing their potential, they're not getting a promotion. And, and the, the, the analogy I gave earlier was to give it a season, to give your, designate a period of time in which you, you know, give it a shot, lean into it, go through some adversity, build some resiliency in the job, generate new skills. Let me give you another framing for the question, how long should I stay? How long should I stay in the job? If you are neither learning nor contributing, it may be time to move on. So, Let's, let's boil it down to the, the simplicity of a meeting. If you keep showing up at, at the same weekly meeting and you're neither learning anything and you're not contributing to the dialogue or moving the conversation forward, you should excuse yourself from the meeting. This isn't constructive. This isn't valuable of your time. Use that metaphor in your work. You need to be constantly learning new skills, collaborating with new people, and contributing to your own personal progress and the progress of the mission of the organization. At some point, if you're neither learning nor contributing, yes, then maybe it's time to move on. Those are really good and I think helpful takeaways from this conversation. And it's interesting because within uh, within the book itself, there were moments when I was reading it, when you were talking about meetings specifically and, and the importance of walking away from a meeting and knowing what was, what was accomplished during the course of that meeting. And that's a, for some leaders, having someone else lead the meeting could assist them in, in understanding what those values are. Or in fact, if, if no meeting was needed because there wasn't value. And I feel like during the pandemic, after the pandemic really came and hit us full force, there became more of a recognition from many organizations that they might have had too many meetings generally and that the things they needed to accomplish could be accomplished in other ways. Have you seen similar things to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, back to my earlier analogy, if you're neither contributing or learning, you should excuse yourself. But you use the example of maybe the leader themselves or the manager in the meeting is putting anchors on the table, these uh, unconscious bias anchors when they express their opinion early or they shut down ideas early. Then that's a signal, that's a cue to everyone in the room, the direction that we should take. Um, Frances Fry is a wonderful leadership development uh, author and consultant, and she has a, a metaphor I like very much. She likes to say in the past decade or 20 years, we've put a lot of emphasis on having leaders and developing leadership, having people look in a mirror and be self-understanding. You know, who am I? What are my motivations? How do I better understand myself? 
And she says, no, we need to invert that. It's not a mirror, it's a window. If I walk into a room and I'm the leader or I'm the manager and everyone's thinking about me and I'm thinking about me, then I'm doing no one in the meeting a service. She says we need to invert that and put all of our energy and attention in developing other people. So the analogy I use in, in the book is you have to begin doing the work to, to learn. So by turning your energy outward to those around you to, to develop other people, you're stepping into the hard work of leadership to develop other people instead of getting out and, and getting out of your own head. I absolutely love that. I think that's a really great concept and idea and um, good, I think, for, for ego generally, especially when we're talking about leadership. And it actually reminds me uh, of something else that was included in your book, um, not, not specifically kind of on point, but, but related. And in chapter three, um, you note the importance of introducing challenge. And I think looking at ourselves through a window um, can be challenging for many people. Um, you note specifically that, that choosing difficult tasks for the sake of continuous improvement is something to be sought after. At a time where many managers already feel extremely stressed, overworked, run down, how can we push ourselves and managers to choose challenge, to, to affirmatively look for challenge in order to further their growth? Well, let's try this. I want you to think of challenge not as a, an adversity to avoid, something to be scared of, something I, 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 I hate, I detest, <laughs> you know. But think of overcoming a fear or an adversity as having unexpected, wonderful uh, outcomes. Now, let me give you an example. So I'll, for, I'll ask you, Tawny, what is something that you're afraid of? Could be anything. Yeah, I, so in my line of work, asking someone for business, I find to be very intimidating because when they say no, will I look silly? Right. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> perfect example. And other people might say, you know, most people say I'm terrified of public speaking or if you're introverted, I'm terrified of social environments or even more foundational things like I'm scared of heights or I'm scared of snakes. So whatever it is, when we confront those fears and we take personal risks towards growth, well, that's when truly unexpected things can happen. So in that chapter, I described the work of Stanford professor Albert Bandura. Now, Bandura is one of the titans of psychology in the 20th century. And he spent a lot of time, a lot of research studying phobias. So in one part of his study, he did some research in which he studied people who were terrified of snakes because it's a very common phobia. And so he picked snakes and he, it was easy to find people who were scared of snakes. And so he would bring them into his offices and he would take them through a series of what he called guided mastery. So like first you sit in the chair and he tells you, oh, there's a snake in the next room. And, <laughs> and then a week later you come for the next visit and he says, would you like to go look? We'll just look. There's a snake handler in there and we'll, we'll just watch. Don't worry, we won't go in the room. Right. And then the following week, he says, well, why don't you put on these big leather gloves and, uh, and a helmet if you need to wear it, you know, and chaps and some ar body armor. And we're going to go over and we're going to we're going to handle this snake. 
Anyway, the point is over a series of weeks, he could cure them. He would get them to the point where they're sitting in a chair and there's a boa constrictor draped across their lap and they're not freaking out. Okay, but here's the, here's the real magic of this piece of research. Over the following weeks, he would call him up or they'd come into his office and he'd interview him and he'd say, well, how's it going with the snake thing? And they'd say, oh, no, no, I'm all, I'm all cured of that. One woman said uh, she had a dream that a boa constrictor helped her wash the dishes. But then the unexpected things started happening. So one guy was a real estate agent and he always took only urban listings because he was scared of, you know, suburban and rural listings like a snake might fall from a tree. And so he started taking professional risks. But then he interviewed people who were doing really strange things like taking up horseback riding or one guy went skydiving and somebody else started dance lessons or basically the his point was when you eradicate that one terrifying fear in your life these unexpected things will open up that you never anticipated you never foresaw and it would just sort of reveal itself to you I tell you what, I'm not a fan of snakes. And when I did read that part of it, it did make me question whether or not I should seek psychological help so that it could help me in other aspects of my life. Um, and it was really interesting study. And I think it was great to place it there because it was helpful in understanding that meeting these fears right, right where they are helps you grow as a person, not just in the space in which you expect it's going to assist. Amen. And the point, of course, is do something difficult and surprising things will happen. You won't only get to overcome the fear of the hard thing, like if you're terrified of public speaking and somebody says, will you give the quarterly report in front of a room full of 30 executives and that terrifies you, but then you do it. And then after the meeting, one of the senior vice presidents walks up to you and says, wow, you were so skilled, so informed, so prepared. Would you come give that presentation with my client? That's the unexpected magic that happens. No, it's, it's such a great thing. And I think it really leads a person to really consider more often making sure that they are pushing themselves and, and facing the things that, that make them nervous. I'd like to actually jump to a completely different part of the book, and it's regarding um, chapter seven, and you talk about a concept called covering. And can you explain to our listeners what covering is and the effect it has on someone's ability to lead, in large part because I feel like I do a lot of management reading, and this was the first time that I'd really gotten into a discussion of covering itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the example I, I use in, in the book is, um, I, was, I was invited to be a speaker at, a, at an event and I said, what should I wear? It was a big technology company, so I wore a black suit. But the very next day I was doing a speech at a Silicon Valley gaming company and I didn't know what to wear. So they said, oh, you just wear jeans and chucks. And so I'm an idiot and I was like, well, what are chucks? But the point, of course, is that that's an example of simple covering behavior that we do to adapt and fit in. And it's absolutely normal, and we do it every day. That's appearance covering. 
uh, that's, you know, trying to wear the right thing and fit in. But we also cover other aspects of our authentic identities. We hide our political opinions that may deeply define us. We hide our cultural histories, our sexual orientations, our socioeconomic backgrounds, our age, our disabilities. And when we hide those very genuine, authentic aspects of ourselves, often we falsely believe that we'll fit in, right? If I, if I hide the fact that I have a, 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 you know, a disabled child and I need to take them to the doctor twice a, twice a month, I'll fit in better because people won't judge my family or why I'm leaving. I'll just keep that a secret. But what happens is the more you be, that encroaches on your work life and your interaction with your colleagues, and the more you conceal of those personal aspects, the inverse happens. You don't feel like you belong. You feel like you're concealing truly authentic, meaningful, deep pieces of your personality, and you start to check out. You know, you start to uh, retreat emotionally and psychically from the organization. We're going to talk more about covering after the break. But right now, we're going to take a, a quick break. You've been listening to HR Power Hour on News Talk WLOB 100.5 FM and WLOBradio.com. We'll be right back. HR Power Hour is proud to share the following information. Strategic HR 2020 moves from the Mount Washington stage to your living room this October. Take a virtual journey around the country and witness HR leaders aspiring to greatness in challenging times and earn SHRM and HRCI continuing education credit. Rates are in effect at strategichrus.com. Then on October 21st, pour yourself some morning coffee and log on to three days of HR exploration. That's at strategichrus.com. Are you looking to hire? Stop wasting time. Jobsinme.com has been matching main employers to job seekers since 1999. Job postings start only $159 with their Quick Post product. Your employment ad can be distributed to over 75 job boards for maximum exposure. When it comes to recruiting locally, you can count on Jobs and ME to connect you with qualified candidates in this area. Visit jobsandme.com. That's jobsandme.com today. Stop searching and start hiring local. Founded in 1958, Jackson Lewis is a national law firm with a local presence. The firm's 765 attorneys practicing in 54 locations throughout the U.S. and Puerto Rico provide a wide range of resources to address every aspect of the employer-employee relationship. HR professionals, business and in-house counsels, and C-suite professionals count on Jackson Lewis as it has one of the most active employee litigation practices in the United States. Contact them today at jacksonlewis.com. That's jacksonlewis.com. At highway speeds, the average text takes your eyes off the road for about five seconds. That's enough time to travel the length of a football field. Stop texts, stoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. And we're back. And you're listening to HR Power Hour, presented by CMACareer.com and Veril-Law.com. I'm Tani Alvarez, your host from Veril, and today our guest is Sean Hunter, president and founder of MindScaling and author of the book, Small Acts of Leadership, 12 Intentional Behaviors That Lead to Big Impact. 
Before the break, we were discussing a concept known as covering that Sean spends time in chapter seven of his book discussing. And I found the concept of covering to be extremely interesting, especially as a labor and employment attorney, because so many of the things that employees end up covering are protected classes, um, sexual orientation, disability, uh, family status, all of those different aspects that in most cases are very fundamental to their personhood, but that are unrelated, kind of in my mind as a lawyer, to their employment, but that play a large role in their ability to be authentic and thus be productive within the work environment. Sean, what are your thoughts as to whether or not covering has experienced a change or that the concepts have changed as a result of the current pandemic? Well, I mean, right now we're, of course, recording this remotely and managers and organizations are meeting with their teams remotely <laughs> all over the world. And what I'm seeing in my own meetings, both in our internal organization and with our clients, that in order to be effective and connect in a more human-to-human -human way, we have to encourage people to spend even more time at the front end of these Zoom calls or remote calls talking about their personal experiences in their, in their life. Set an expectation, not that you have to share something personal, but that you're invited to. It's our humanity. That's what bonds us together and makes us connected and engaged with one another. And if we're only talking about work, then we're kind of missing the, the great humanity of one another. And on, on that note, that's why it can be incredibly important for leaders and managers to set the tone by saying, you know, this happened or I, I, I had this kind of adversity in my life by displaying that vulnerability in their conversation, it creates trust in the group. I mean, there's a misconception that um, trust precedes vulnerability, but in fact, vulnerability precedes trust. So as a leader or manager, if you're running remote calls, you need to set the tone that it's okay to talk about whatever adversities or stresses are, are going on, because that will create trust among the group because many people will feel the same way and they'll think to themselves, thank you for saying it out loud. I think it's, it goes to, to that idea of, of, lead, of leading and, and one of those concepts in your book. And it's interesting because last night I had a very specific experience that tied in to these concepts and I'm part of um, a group of female attorneys who are parents and um, the, an associate sent out kind of this screenshot and said, this is the type of organization I want to work for. And the calendar invite said, Sarah will initiate the call at or around 9 a.m. or whatever time she's able to get Mason down for a nap and have a few minutes to have this call. And the associate was really impressed by the fact that they weren't going to hide about the fact that there was parental obligations that were also going to play a role in the timing of this phone call, and that they were really upfront with it to begin with. And I found that tying in with the covering concepts to be really interesting. 
I agree. I agree. That sort of transparency and honesty in one's own life can be very valuable and give permission to those around you to share the same kind of stresses and adversities they have. That said, there is a, a level of reliability that we'd like to have among one another. I mean, of course, if, you're, if your child is, is sick or needs a nap, that makes sense. Text your partners and say, look, I can't be there. Yet, yet, reliability is very important to keep projects moving along, collaborations happening, conversations accelerating, et cetera. One of the aspects that you tie in or when we're talking about covering, you use it when we're talking about authenticity and the importance about, of being an authentic leader. Um, and you have this great quote in the book that's, once we start to conceal personal identity traits, it also becomes harder to honestly and genuinely connect with others. The result is that we lose a sense of belonging, which is at the very core of today's buzzwords, um, engagement. So if you have a culture that limits the ability to be your full self, um, how do you see this adversely affecting engagement? Well, it, it, it can be pervasive in organizations. So for example, unconsciously, we can consistently be coaching, particularly new hires and those around us, how to behave and how to assimilate into organizations. We'll say, oh, oh, you're going into Jane's meeting. Well, she really likes it when the, you know, your power, you keep it to two slides and you keep it very short. And, and oh, you're gonna, you're gonna pitch to this customer. Well, you should really dress like this. But, so we're sort of tacitly coaching people in the organization how to assimilate. And by doing that, we're displacing that authenticity and that uniqueness that they could bring to the table. So I like, I like to say, instead of, you know, coaching people to assimilate, you should ask them to bring their unique perspective. How would you approach this problem? What questions would you have to approach this kind of deal? Uh, Dan Pink has a nice rubric. He likes people to think in terms of the team, the task, the technique, and the time that they, that they, work on at work and to what level do you have autonomy over, over those four dimensions? The team that you work on, the task that you perform, the technique that you use, and the time that you obligate it. And if you think in those four dimensions, you want to get as high of an autonomy score as you can, because then that gets back to our earlier conversation about intrinsic motivation. When we consider that engagement, I think that, that that becomes so important in remembering kind of those those topics or those key words. And again, I think it's so helpful. You, you take some really big concepts within the book and are able to break them down in the similar fashion in which we're using a couple of keywords or devices that are helping to keep them at top of mind for leaders um, who are, are juggling lots of information at the same time. Um, so I think that's super helpful. We're going to take a quick break. You've been listening to the HR Power Hour on News Talk WLOB 100.5 FM and WLOBradio.com. We'll be right back. HR Power Hour is proud to share the following information. Strategic HR 2020 moves from the Mount Washington stage to your living room this October. 
Take a virtual journey around the country and witness HR leaders aspiring to greatness in challenging times and earn SHRM and HRCI continuing education credit. Rates are in effect at strategichrus.com. Then on October 21st, pour yourself some morning coffee and log on to three days of HR exploration. That's at strategichrus.com. Are you looking to hire? Stop wasting time. Jobs in ME.com has been matching main employers to job seekers since 1999. Job postings start only $159 with their Quick Post product. Your employment ad can be distributed to over 75 job boards for maximum exposure. When it comes to recruiting locally, you can count on Jobs and ME to connect you with qualified candidates in this area. Visit jobsinme.com. That's jobsinme.com today. Stop searching and start hiring local. Founded in 1958, Jackson Lewis is a national law firm with a local presence. The firm's 765 attorneys practicing in 54 locations throughout the U.S. and Puerto Rico provide a wide range of resources to address every aspect of the employer-employee relationship. HR professionals, business, and in-house counsels and C-suite professionals count on Jackson Lewis as it has one of the most active employee litigation practices in the United States. Contact them today at jacksonlewis.com. That's jacksonlewis.com. Man, do I love card night. You ready, boys? You got a king? Go fish that. Oh, come on. (laughs) This is WWE superstar Titus O'Neil. The smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Take time to be a dad today. Learn more at 877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. And we're back, and you're listening to HR Power Hour, presented by CMACareer.com and VeralHyphenLaw.com. I'm Tony Alvarez, your host from Veral, and today our guest is Sean Hunter, president and founder of MindScaling and author of the book, Small Acts of Leadership, 12 Intentional Behaviors That Lead to Big Impact. Sean, in your book, you have a segment where you talk about your daughter's school and the buddy bench at school, um, and you tie it into an organization, an organizational culture. Can you give our listeners just a brief background of what the buddy bench at school is generally? Yes, I had never heard of it until our daughter came home from elementary school, and she said, we have something at school called the buddy bench. And, And Annie said, it's where you can go and you can sit if you don't have any friends to play with. And then if somebody sees, if, if you see someone sitting there alone on the buddy bench, your job is to go over there and then invite them to come play with you. So my first re- reaction to the thought of the buddy bench was that it sort of sounded like the, the no friends bench. Like I don't have any friends. I'm, I'm going to sit there and I'll be sad and lonely. And then, the act of walking over and then inviting someone to play was kind of an act of, of generosity or an act of, of kindness. Um, and that if you did have the courage to walk over in front of the whole world to see, take their hand, invite them to play with you. And then that the two of you might be quietly ostracized in a corner of the playground. But, but that's how I thought of it in my head. But she said it was totally different. The way our daughter describes it, there was nothing odd, nothing strange, nothing uncomfortable about it at all. 
if you have no, if you want to play with a, a new group, you just signal that by going to the buddy bench and you sit down and then somebody will observe this. And then your job, if you observe this is to go invite them to play. And there's nothing weird at all about it. So there's no, there's no stigma. And, and I, I like that analogy very much. So I kind of applied it to organizations, which is, if you are then concerned about lack of engagement or professional isolation in your work environment, I think people should be managers and leaders, especially be proactive and start with the assumption that this person is at your company for a reason. They deserve to be there. They have skills. You know, maybe there's cues that you can recognize like a lack of contribution at meetings or unanswered emails or missed deadlines, et cetera. Your job then is to pick up the phone or walk over to their cube, or call them up, invite them for coffee, invite their opinion, invite them to contribute, invite them to participate. And that is a small act of leadership. I think it was so great that you tied the concept into the work environment because while I'd heard of the buddy bench before my my eight-year-old daughter has referenced it and and in a very similar fashion as to as to how your daughter described it and you describe it in the book um and in my mind that stigma kind of was still there even though as children it would never be there um, but then thinking of the fact that when you take this same concept and put it into your organization that if you're able to change the environment um, and the way that it's looked at, that, hey, invite this person, engage them. Um, that engagement, while we focus a lot on what the person's doing to engage themselves in the process, um, we as leaders each have a pivotal role that we play in, in, in helping to engage people and making sure that, that we identify people who aren't engaged and working with them to engage them. Um, so I think you did just an absolutely amazing job of, of discussing that concept within the book and bringing it into something that in our personal lives um, we may experience kind of all the time. Thank you. And, and I think you make an important point, which is the buddy bench is a, is a proverbial buddy bench <laughs> that really exists in the playground at the elementary school, but does not necessarily exist in the workplace. So it's your job to look for those cues, look for silence, look, of la look for lack of contribution, look for unanswered phone calls, look for mix missed deadlines, look for half-ass work, and then be proactive and lean into that and step into that, conver that difficult conversation and go to them and say, what's up? What's going on? How can I help? Do you want to, you know, find something meaningful for them to engage and work on? And on that point, Sean, I, I think that's the perfect place for us to end it. Thank you so much for um, your insight, um, both during the course of this interview and also in the book, Small Acts of Leadership, 12 Intentional Behaviors That Lead to Big Impact. I got my copy on Amazon, but Sean, can you tell our listeners other places where they can find it? Amazon's a great place to get it. Um, and if you have any questions at all, please reach out to me. I answer my own email <laughs> and I would be delighted to chat with you.
You've been listening to the HR Power Hour on News Talk WLOB 100.5 FM and WLOBradio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Stay tuned for the HR Tip of the Week. And now your HR Tip of the Week. Your HR Tip of the Week is being sponsored by Veril. Hi, this is Tani Alvarez at Veril. The pandemic, and more specifically, the return to work, serves as a great reminder for employers to be mindful of employee medical record retention. OSHA's guidance on returning to work, available on their website, includes important information found on pages 13 and 14 of the document regarding testing employees for COVID-19 or performing health screens or temperature checks in the workplace. These pages include requirements that employers may have if records are created in relationship to those tests and whether the tests qualify as medical records under the Access to Employee Exposure and Medical Records Standard set forth in OSHA regulations. Contact a member of Veril's Labor and Employment Practice Group should you have further questions. And that's your HR Tip of the Week, sponsored by Veril. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and catch us every week at 10 a.m. on News Talk WLOB 100.5 FM or 1310 a.m. and streaming live at WLOBradio.com. Podcasts of this show and every show are available at hrpowerhour.com. Have a great week, everyone, and remember, HR management is critical to your business's success.